Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind. I've been thinking a lot lately about civility. Of course, basic politeness and exercising good manners is essential. But I think civility, real civility, goes deeper. It means to choose our words carefully and thoughtfully in non-hurtful ways. It means to be respectful of how another person sees the world even when we heartily disagree. And to maintain a sense of humility, because as a wise friend of mine used to say, we could always be wrong. These are lofty goals which I practice imperfectly, of course. But that's the tone we strive for in these programs. Thank you for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Being found guilty by a jury of 12 misinformed people, a jury fed on lies, perjury, and manufactured evidence, did not make me guilty. So I refused to act the part of a guilty man. I refused to become a good prisoner. Resistance was my defense. I would not speak to the guards, nor would I acknowledge their existences. I refused to move to the rhythm of the prison or obey its arbitrary rules. I refused to wear its stripes. I refused to eat its food. I refused to work its jobs. And I would have refused to breathe the prison's air if I could have done so and yet remained alive. The story of Reuben Hurricane Carter, falsely accused of murder and ultimately freed by a federal judge. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. As a successful prize fighter in the 1960s, Reuben Carter battered his opponents in the ring with such force he became known as the Hurricane. Carter was a contender for the middleweight title, could have been champion of the world as proclaimed by Bob Dylan in his 1975 song about the boxer entitled Hurricane. But that career path was forever altered the night of June 17, 1966. Three people were gunned down at a tavern in Patterson, New Jersey, Carter's hometown. He and a co-defendant were convicted of murder and narrowly escaped the death penalty. Reuben Carter steadfastly maintained he wasn't at the bar, had nothing to do with the crime. And in prison, he would not cooperate with authorities. Any time that I would refuse to do something, I'm in solitary confinement. So cumulatively, over your nearly 20 years behind bars, That's right. you spent about 10 years about in solitary? 10 years in solitary confinement. Solitary confinement at Trenton State Prison was the pits. I mean, Trenton State Prison was built in 1849. It was a dungeon. And solitary confinement there was six feet under the ground in total darkness. No, no lights, you know, no running water, no sanitary condition, no bed. You slept on concrete floor. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so solitary confinement there was really the pits, you know. And eventually we were able to modify that somewhat. But when I went there in 66, 
It was the pits. The remarkable life story of Reuben Carter, who died in April 2014 at age 76, was dramatized in an Academy Award-nominated performance by Denzel Washington in the 1999 film Hurricane. Here he receives a visit to prison from his wife. Now they've turned down my request for an appeal. I'm sorry, it, uh, it's over. It's finished. I'm going to die in here, May, so... Baby, listen, there is still a chance. Just now, all to me, we have to do is hang There's on. There's nothing to hang on to, May. As told in his new memoir, Eye of the Hurricane, Reuben Carter's plight looked hopeless. He felt the system was racially biased. He and his co-defendant, John Artis, were black. The judge, prosecutor, and jury were all white. At first, New Jersey courts had overturned the original conviction when the only eyewitness putting Carter at the scene of the crime recanted his testimony. Fellow boxer Muhammad Ali personally paid the bail to free Carter pending a second trial. But the witness changed his story yet again. Carter and Artis were convicted a second time. Here comes the story of the hurricane. The man the authorities came to blame for something that he never done. Put in a prison cell, but one time he could have been the champion of the world. In 1985, Reuben Carter's lawyers, who devoted over a million dollars in unpaid staff time to his defense, saw no alternative but to take a high-stakes gamble. They petitioned a federal court, which would mean forfeiting further appeals to the state trial court. More than 19 years after the barroom murders, the case was assigned to U.S. District Court Judge H. Lee Sarakin. What I did was grant him a writ of habeas corpus, and that gave to the state the decision whether to retry him or not. Uh, and we don't really find guilt or innocence when we're granting writs of habeas corpus, although I've expressed on a number of occasions uh, my own view that I think uh, Reuben Carter uh, is innocent and... and uh, was an innocent person at the time that he was convicted. Reuben Carter was no stranger to trouble or to confinement. He was sentenced to a New Jersey reform school starting at age 14 after being convicted of assault. Following a turbulent stint in the Army, he did time for a string of muggings. But Carter's life seemed to be turning around when he met with success as a professional boxer, including nationally televised fights from Madison Square Garden. Then came the 1966 murders at the Lafayette Bar and Grill in Patterson, for which Reuben Carter was wrongly convicted. He came to realize he was as much a captive of his emotions as of the jail cell that confined his body. For the first 10 years of my imprisonment, I hated everything that moved. I hated everything and everybody. And finally it began to manifest itself on me when I saw myself in the mirror one day. I said, oh my God, that can't be me. I mean, I was full of hate and that hate was all over my face, was in my eyes, in my mouth, in my teeth, the way I walked. So I knew then I said, hmm, hatred and bitterness only consumes the vessel that contains it. So if there's any change at all, I've got to change. 
This prison is not going to change. This prison is a prison is a prison, and it's not going to change. Was it painful to accept that the conditions that confined you would not change, that you were stuck there? No, I knew what prison was, because I've been in prison all my life. So I knew what prison was. I knew I was in a prison. And, and, and it's interesting you should say that, Dave, because only when you know you're in prison can you ever seek to get out of that prison. If you don't know you're in prison, why would you want to escape prison if you don't know it? And that is our problem here on this level of unconscious human insanity. We don't realize that it is a prison, and therefore we can't escape it. So what insight allowed you to reach the recognition that you were in prison? When I saw that monster... In the mirror? In the mirror. I knew that I was not only in a physical prison, but I was also in an emotional prison. I was also in a psychological prison. I was also in prison. I even imprisoned myself within the prison. And I knew that something's got to change here, because that's not me. So the bars of your self-constructed prison were hatred? Hatred, bitterness, being a victim. I was a victim, you know. They did this to me. They did this to me, and that just fueled my hatred. And they know that I know that they know that I didn't kill anybody. I had nothing to do with that. And they know I, don't have, I didn't have anything to do with that. But they did it to me anyway. They just said, we don't care. We're gonna, we have the power to do it, and we're going to do it. And that just fueled my hatred. You know what I mean? And I realized... So you, you were convinced that your accusers, that the machinery of prosecution was aware of your innocence anyway? Absolutely. Absolutely. How, they, could, how could you know that? Because there's a, what evidence do, did they have that I murdered anybody? The evidence that, I had, that they had that I murdered anybody came from a jailhouse snitch, one named Alfred Bellow. At trial, the prosecution presented Bellow as the only surviving eyewitness to the 2.30 a.m. murders. But Bellow's credibility was uncertain. The reason he was in the neighborhood at that hour was to commit his own crime. He was participating in the burglary of a nearby factory, standing as the lookout. Years later, in a jailhouse interview, Bellow described what he said to police. I told them I seen two black males. It was suggested, more or less put into my being that these were the two black males. At the time, even before the trial, I wasn't sure if it was them. I told them it may be and it may not be. There's a possibility. But, but at the They were telling me it was, it was, it is them. Over the years, Alfred Bellow's account of the events kept shifting. He provided at least three different versions. As Judge Sarakin ultimately ruled, Bellow continued revising his story until it became unrecognizable. So you're saying that a reasonable person would have been highly suspicious of Alfred Bellow's account? Absolutely. A reasonable person, Alfred Bellow would not have even been allowed to testify in court. But because the United States at that time was so color conscious, and because we were trying to get rid of segregation, and all Jim Crowism and all those other things, and because of the long, hot summers where people were being shot down in the streets every single day, that was the atmosphere at that time. 
10 months before the triple murder in Patterson, New Jersey. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than 100 square blocks were decimated by fire and looters, and few buildings were left intact. U.S. District Court Judge H. Lee Sarakin. Between the first and second trial at the appeal when uh, the eyewitness had recanted and they went to the, all the way to the Supreme Court to get a new trial, the New Jersey Supreme Court kept asking the question that I guess everybody should have asked, and that was, why would Reuben Carter, the best-known, most easily identified person in Patterson, New Jersey... Because he was a, a famous prize fighter. Yeah, go into a bar and shoot four people he never met. So... Uh, the prosecutor took the hint, and at the second trial, they came up with this motive that um, a white man had killed a black man and argued to the jury, basically, that this revenge was something that black people did. Uh, and I thought that was an outrageous, racist argument to make. Um and so to that extent, I think uh, race played a, a tremendous role in, in the conviction. So who was the true murderer in, in the case of the Lafayette Bar and Grill? Nobody's murders? ever been found. Nobody uh, has ever been identified. The uh, police prosecutors focused on uh, Reuben Carter and John Artis and stayed with that throughout, never really looked for anybody else. So far as I know, I don't, I don't want to condemn them unfairly, but that's the information that I've received over the years uh, because they were convinced uh, that they had the right person. And, and I think it's important to make this point in fairness to prosecutors. Uh, I don't think that prosecutors intentionally go after people that they think are innocent. They have reason to believe that the person is truly guilty. They don't uh, prosecute innocent people or people they believe are innocent. But sometimes in the quest to convict those people, um, rights are violated, and um, that's, that's one of the dangers. But I've read your entire ruling in the case of Reuben Carter and his co-defendant. Would it be correct to say you think they were framed? Uh, framed, I don't think, is the word. I, 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 think, uh, I think important information was either ignored or withheld from them that would have made a tremendous difference in the case. And, of course, my other grounds, uh, other than the withholding of information, was I thought that a very uh, blatantly racist argument had been made to the jury that I thought was outrageous. Uh, and that was as important an aspect of my decision as the withholding of uh, exculpatory information. Exploring the remarkable life journey of Reuben Carter, whose new memoir is entitled Eye of the Hurricane. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, visit our website, humanmedia.org.
having spent nearly two decades in jail after being wrongly convicted of homicide, Reuben Carter had ample time to contemplate mistakes made by society and by himself. While behind bars, he read books of philosophy, thirsting for deep comprehension of what had gone wrong in his life and what it all means. Since leaving jail in 1985 and moving to Toronto, Canada, he has devoted his time to organizing and advocating for other prisoners he believes were falsely accused and unjustly incarcerated. And as we'll hear, he developed a profoundly spiritual worldview that may seem surprising. You've said our society is filled with people who are sleepwalking. Ah, yes. What do you mean by that? Well, let's look at it this way, David. We look around us today, and for the whole of human history on this earth, we look at ourselves, and we see ourselves hating other people because of things like religion and politics. We see ourselves robbing each other, raping each other, being violent towards each other. We see that. We see children not being able to, to eat or, or able to go to school or, or human beings living on the streets, not having houses or sustenance on this beautiful planet Earth, which is nothing but a great big smorgasbord, where anything that you can possibly want or need is right here, right now. And, 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 and we don't see those things, you know? And so we look at other people not as our brothers and sisters, and not even as our cousins, not even as other human beings, but we look at other people in the light of, of religion. I'm a Muslim, you're a Christian. For generations, Muslims and Christians have always fought, so we fight too. We fight too just because everybody else does it. That's what everybody do. You know, I'm Jewish, and therefore... Uh, my people have been uh, uh, desecrated all their life wherever they go. Therefore, I'm going to be Jewish. That's it, you know. Or, or I'm black. You know, uh, uh, there's been 400 years of slavery where 175 million Africans were transported from Africa all over the Western world. You know, we look at ourselves through these kind of, through these kind of eyes. And then we don't see ourselves because we are all, every one of us on this planet is nothing more or less than a flower from the sun, a seed planted in organic life on earth with the ability to, be, to do better, to be more beautiful, to have more wisdom than anything that anybody can possibly imagine. We don't see ourselves as that. We don't know ourselves. That's the reason why even in the Bible, in biblical days, it says the most important thing about that is know thyself. Because if you know thyself, you know everything else that's going on in the universe. And that's why I'm talking about different levels of life itself. If you know where you are and you know who you are and where you come from, then you know what your possibilities are. Well, they say to know yourself is to know God. It's to know God. This is the only God that exists, is the, is the essence that exists in each one of us. And each one of us has that essence. Each one of us 
has the possibility of waking up and being conscious and being stronger, more beautiful than anything anybody can imagine. Even people resorting to the worst behaviors? Even people resorting to the worst behavior. That's why I say to people, uh, you know, my, my life's work is dealing with innocent people, getting them out of prison. That's my life's work. Given the harsh conditions in most prisons, what's your advice for how people who are incarcerated can hold on to their humanity? That's why I tell people, innocent or guilty makes no difference. It really makes no difference. If you find yourself in prison, then whatever you've done in life has led you to where you are right now. If you wake up one day and find yourself in a prison, then whatever you've done in your life have led you to where you are. Even if you are innocent of the crime for which you've been convicted. Even if you are innocent. Even if you are innocent, it's led you, your attitudes, your... Uh, in order for people to want to frame you, in order for people to even pick you out, there must be something that you've done that caused these people to identify you, to cause these people to pick you out of the crowd. But is that blaming the victim, the person who's been wrongly convicted? Oh, no, 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 no. It's not blaming. See, the thing about it is who we were born to, where we were born, uh, the religion of our parents, the, the, the wealth of our parents, or the lack of wealth of our parents, we had nothing to do with that. The thing about it is that everybody wants to be a victim because victims are able to get angry, victims are able to seek revenge, victims are able to do all kinds of things. The thing that we really have to understand, and what I had to learn, is that if we are not all victims, because none of us had anything to do with being here. None of us. So if we are not all victims, then there are no victims at all. You see? So I had to stop being a victim. I, you know, I had to stop being that, that victim where, 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 where I can justify my anger. So what is the key to transcending this thought so many people have, I'm a victim of the way I was raised, I'm a victim of the way my spouse treats me. I'm a victim of my employer. I'm a victim of the society. We often walk around with a kind of attitude of victimhood. What's the way out of that? The way out of that is, is to wake up and realize what this universe really is. To look at our home and see where we are, see where we come from, see where we're going and see that everybody is a victim because we, none of us asked to come here. None of us asked to be born to the parents that we were born to. None of us asked you know, for that. Whether our parents are rich or poor, you're black or white, yellow or green, none of us asked for that. So we are all victims, and we have to stop being a victim. We have to realize who we are. So what is the alternative to being a victim? The alternative of being a victim is being free. That's the alternative of being a victim. Freedom or victimhood. And freedom is far better than victimhood could ever be. That's free from thought, free from, from doubt, 
free from all of these things that cause us so much problems. Free from being black. Free from being a man. I want to be an awakened, enlightened soul where I can walk on this earth and see everybody on this earth as the beautiful flower that they really are. And then I, and then I have no opposition to anyone. Are there times when you can walk down the street and see people through that lens? I, I see people through that lens every single moment. And that's why I see people for what they really are. Nothing is as it appears to be on this level of life. Absolutely nothing. This whole level of life is nothing but an illusion. And we're always reacting with these illusions. And these illusions just create other illusions. Reactions create reactions. That's why violence only begets violence. Even if that violence is done in response to violence, it's wrong. It's the wrong action to take. Wrong action. It always creates more problems than it's going to solve. Today, Reuben Carter stays in touch with Judge Sarakin. Every year on the anniversary of the legal ruling that resulted in his being released from prison, Carter phones Judge Sarakin, now in retirement, to thank him for his freedom. A lot of um, my opinion, frankly, has developed not as a result uh, of the case or the record, but my experience um, with him and with people that know him since uh, my decision. And of course, that was no part of the record, no part of my decision. Uh, but my experience with Reuben Carter is that he's uh, just a remarkable person, a, a great testament to the human spirit. And his attitude about life and his imprisonment uh, is truly remarkable. I try to think how I would feel or anybody would feel if they spent 19 years in prison for a crime that they didn't commit. I, I think I would come out uh, fairly angry, uh, bitter. Uh, he doesn't have any of that. Uh, he, he refuses to have it because he thinks it will just uh, undo um, the good that he's trying to do. And um, In his work he, to defend the wrongly convicted right. now? And to to advocate for them. Right. And his spirits are high, and he has a wonderful sense of humor. I I have to tell a quick story. My prized possession, Reuben Carter sent me a a photograph uh, of him and a huge fish that he uh, had caught, as large as as he is. And he wrote uh, an inscription on the photograph, and he said, Dear Judge... Uh, without you, this fish would still be alive. And th- that's quintessential Reuben Carter. He's got a wonderful sense of humor. So there, there was a case of, of serious repercussions of, of your ruling. Yes, yes. And we've been uh, on many programs together. Uh, we, we've done some lectures, uh, again, talking about the importance of uh, habeas corpus and I've always found him just to be a very positive, very up, and, and very inspiring. And I also say that uh, I, I think if he were guilty, uh, he wouldn't go out of his way 
to spend a lot of time with the judge who freed him. I mean, I think if if a guilty man had gotten off under these circumstances, he would have gone into hiding, not been out so publicly as uh, Reuben has been uh, since the, the day the Supreme Court finally affirmed my decision. Retired federal judge H. Lee Sarakin, who granted a writ of habeas corpus ending the improper detention of Reuben Hurricane Carter. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart and Jane Pippick. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck, Ken Klonsky, KPBS San Diego, Bob Dylan, and Sony Music. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN, and our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of Reuben Carter's Hurricane, is Humankind program number 166. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.